Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Kerry Series, the Portfolio Manager of the Inspire Impact Australian Equities Fund, a fund that not only seeks to outperform the Australian Equities benchmark, but to make a positive impact to the world around us. We've previously featured Michael Trail talking about impact investment. I think this is a very good addition to that. Please remember that this isn't a recommendation of any specific investment. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, as well as seeking their own advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. Kerry Series, welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Kerry. Perhaps you could kick off by giving uh, our listeners a bit of background to yourself and your history in financial markets. Who is it that they're about to listen to? Yeah, sure. So I started in the markets in uh, 1986, so 34 years ago now, um, and and had my first trading job, uh, which I started about a month before the crash of 87. Uh, So sort of bruising experiences early in my career. Um, In fact, went on on from that uh, to, to join Bearings just before Nick Leeson the bank and lost um, and then started my first when I came to Australia I started my first boutique funds management company with Mike Crivelli uh, in late 96 and um, we launched an Asian equity fund just before the Asian equity crisis so some some bruising early experiences uh, the story gets better from there but uh, 34 years in in the stock market and you know, passionate about investing still today and and you were a co-founder of perennial is that right yeah, correct, yes. And what led you to start that? Well, so Mike and I got together in, in 96 uh, to start uh, um, a funds management company called Pacific Road Funds Management together. And as I say, we, we, we started on Asian equities at not a great time. Uh, Mike had an association with IWF uh, at that time. And uh, also Ian McCowan came through our doors to listen to one of our presentations. And the three of us sort of got sitting around and talking about a multi-boutique model, uh, which made a lot of sense to us. I, I had actually, during my economics degree, written a paper about active funds management through the decades uh, and reached a conclusion, this is the early 90s, reached a conclusion uh, that the future of funds management was sort of passive um, index investing or boutique style investing. And so I aligned my career with boutique. So when I was sitting with Mike uh, Crivelli and Ian McCown, you know, we came up with this multi-boutique model, which made a lot of sense. And so we took that to IWF um, and they backed us. So we launched Perennial uh, early 1999 with this multi-boutique model where Perennial was the service company and then the, in- the investors owned stakes in their own boutiques. And you know, it was a very successful model. And when did you exit that and, and why? So we sold to IWF at the end of 2006. They wanted to own the, the brand and the, the funds management business. Uh, I'd left slightly before that. Um, just go off and, and, and do other things. And I, I, I also launched my own hedge fund in that period, uh, which was an, another interesting experience. So that was 96 going into, sorry, it was 06 going into, uh, into the GFC. And Kerry, what were the key learnings you took out of your time through that process? 
Yeah, so I, I mean, as I reflect on on my thirty four years of investing uh, and and funds management, um, you know, and, and once again today I'm I'm uh, co founder of a boutique funds management company. Um, I, I'm I think one of the key things for investors is, is to allow them to operate in an environment where they're not distracted, and that's very difficult for funds management companies to do, particularly larger institutional funds management companies. So it, it's sort of a it's a nice position to be in to have a boutique funds management company where you can focus on on investing. Uh, and I think the you know I've been through several cycles now. Um, um, we could talk for hours and hours about the, the different cycles and, and why they occur and what's occurred. Um, but I think it's this combination of having a belief in your in in, a, in an approach to investing, but also a pragmatism to recognise that market environments change and and you need to be aware of of the environment that you're operating in. And tell us about uh, Inspire Impact. So Inspire Impact uh, was founded by Irene Vidala in late 2018. And I teamed up with, with her and the Inspire Impact team uh, late last year. I founded a, a fund, which is the fund that I run at the moment, which is now called the Inspire Australian Equities Fund, to apply the, you know, the lens of impact investing to investing in the Australian stock market. And I actually started that fund in early 2017 um, uh, as part of my other funds management company, Eight Investment Partners, which is an Australian small cap focused funds manager. And what I was looking to do was to take that fund and put it in an environment where it, I was, it was just in an environment where we were just focused on impact investing. So Irene and her team focus on uh, they run a disability accommodation fund. They're looking to do PE deals um, with an impact lens. And so I, I brought it across to a joint venture between myself and Inspire Impact, uh, where I could run the Inspire Australian Equities Fund in that environment of, of just impact focus. Now, our listeners would have had some exposure, or those that have been listening for a while now, we had Michael Trail talking about impact investing um, probably about 30 podcasts ago. So it would be worthwhile giving our listeners just a, a bit of a crash course in impact investing and why and what some of the traits are in terminology. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, the simplest definition I, I've sort of been able to come up with is, is the idea of a, of a positive screen for investing. So when we talk about ESG and SRI funds in the stock market, we often talk about a negative screen, excluding... Taking out alcohol, tobacco... Things that people might say are bad. So the, the, the sort of do no harm concept. Mm -hmm. With impact investing, I think you go a, so you go a stage further, further. You say I want to intentionally put my money into companies that are, that are doing good, that are, that are making a positive contribution to addressing the social and environmental challenges that we face. So it's that intentionality. It's the positive impact. Uh, of the companies or assets that you're investing in that distinguishes impact investing from an ESG or SRI fund. And how do you define or who defines doing good? That's a great question. We've, we've thought about this long and hard. Um, and, and what we've, we've ended up um, using the UN SDG, Sustainable Development Goals framework, as a, as a definition of, of what the challenges are that we face. 
um, we, we, you know, we did have a discussion about, you know, my, my opinions on what the world, challenges the world faces may be very different from Barnaby Joyce's view of what challenges the world faces. So we needed a framework to look to and say, well, look, there's a, there's a de definition of, of problems, of challenges that we, we want to address. Um, so we've, we've, we've used that framework. And we did a piece of work, there's, there's 17 SDGs. Um, they also have uh, 169 targets that they aim to meet. Um, so we did an, an analysis of those targets to try and determine which of those could be contributed to through investing. So a lot of them require philanthropy or uh, policy change, and, uh, lobbying or political uh, policy change. We came up with 76 of them whereby uh, through investing in a, in a company or assets, uh, you could contribute towards meeting those targets. And then just to, you know, the next step down was to uh, group those in what we call impact focus areas. And so we have 11 impact focus areas. You know, it'd be very you know, uh, easy to, for people to understand. So renewable energy, energy efficiency, uh, healthy living, education, well-being, to name a few. Uh, and then we created our, our universe of stocks to select from, um, from those impact focus areas. So we have a universe of a little over 200 ASX listed companies, which you can, which all are all grouped under one of those impact focus areas, and each one of them ties back to the a, a UN SDG. So a little over 250, did you say? A little over 200 in, okay. the, in the universe. In, in, in the Australian market that you've identified according to this definition, based off the UN sort of framework, fit into this category of doing good. Correct, yeah. And, and where is, so our listeners can think about this, you know, if one hand they can do good through philanthropy and charity, on the other hand they can invest, in many cases will be of the belief, well I make more money then I can do more good. Um, <clears throat> where is the intersection here between, you know, uh, somebody investing in this way, is it a, should they think of it as charity or should they think about this as just investing, um, that happens to do good, or is this, you know, more akin to charity where you might make some money? So I think about this as complementary to philanthropic activities. In fact, it, it sort of, why, why are you undertaking the philanthropic activities? You know, there's something um, about how your belief set, the, your values, that says you want to do good in the world, you want to perhaps give back. With impact investing, I think it's 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 similar along the similar lines, but it's a different activity. It, it absolutely is investing, and it is investing for return. Um, you know, we've been running the fund for three and a half years, and it's comfortably outperformed the All Ordinaries Index, for example. But I think if we if uh, you know the way the way I I think about it is um, there's sort of two pillars to the philosophy. Uh, one is that we have a set of challenges in the world, um, both social, clearly environmental, the climate, climate crisis. And there is a need to direct capital to, to help solve those problems. You know, investing, investment capital is not, is not the only solution. It requires philanthropic capital. It requires government policy. But investment capital into companies which are 
directly addressing and impacting those challenges is another way that we can accelerate the, um, towards the solution to these problems. We think about the climate crisis and the need to, to pour capital into renewable energy to change our entire energy system. You know, that's going to re require private companies and large amounts of capital going into those private companies to make it happen. So impact investing is another you know, brick in the, in the foundations of, of building the, the solutions to, to these challenges that we face today. And, and what is the objective or the return objective or the lens that you use when looking at those bit over 200 companies to work out whether they make it into your portfolio and the sort of objective of that fund over time? Yeah, and, and sort of, which brings me to the second pillar, which I think, I think there's a, you know, there are, there's a mega trend, for want of a better word, um, underway where um, people want to align their, their behaviours. So you know, consumers want to, want to buy goods and services where, you know, which they feel good about. They feel good about the company that's providing them or, um, and, uh, and employees, you know, particularly young people, they want to work for companies where they think there's, you know, there's, there is a purpose to that company beyond just making money. And I think we increasingly see investors seeing investors shift capital towards well, clearly ESG funds. I saw a chart the other day which showed over the last five years plus massive inflows into ESG and SRI funds and outflows from other active funds. So those, those mega trends seem to me to be underway. Uh, and that, that makes me think, I've, I've, I'm not sure it's the best phrase, I use this, it's, a, it's a technical phrase, um, but there may be embedded alpha in investing in you know, good companies or companies for good. I.e. the idea that this megatrend is underway, people want to buy from companies that have a purpose, they want to work for companies that have a purpose, they want to invest in companies that have a purpose. And therefore, if I'm selecting from a group 200 plus of companies where their core business is doing something that is positive for society or the environment, there's a fair chance that those companies are actually going to succeed. There's a, there's a, um, there's a great book called Purpose Incorporated by the guy that, that founded Room to Read. And it's essentially saying that having a purpose is, is, now, is now a competitive advantage for companies. So very much, you know, the philosophy, the, the, the second pillar of the philosophy is that there is an opportunity set here, which we you know, hope and, and expect um, can provide us with the opportunities to actually outperform the stock market, the broader stock market over time, while still investing in companies where their core business is making a positive contribution. This is an interesting point. This is what I wanted to get into in that I think a lot of investors have associated, you know, I can remember very early on in my career as an investment analyst, you know, being told any, any of the sins inevitably make money. Um, if you think of defense, if you think of gaming, you think of alcohol, uh, all of these things, uh, if you've been an Australian investor exposed to these things over the last 20 years, uh, you, you've done pretty well. And, and then I think the natural corollary of that is to think, well, the opposite side of that is probably not done well. Is there empirical data starting to come through that is showing that these companies for purpose or organisations for purpose are demonstrably more competitive or producing profits 
above some of their, 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 their older style companies, if you'd like? So uh, you know, maybe to my comment very you know, earlier in, in a discussion about you ought to be aware that environments change. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think it may be early days in this change, but, uh, you know, I think there's a change in a way in terms of people's attitudes. And again, I'd say it's being driven by the young today uh, in terms of their attitudes towards the role of companies in, in society. And so maybe what's worked for the last 20 years, perhaps that doesn't work in the next 20 years. We, we have done a piece of work around the performance of companies that are better positioned for the transition to a net zero emissions economy. Um, and that has certainly shown that over the last, uh, we only went back a few, few years, so, but over the last five years, companies which are better positioned, we use a number of quantitative measures, uh, have actually outperformed those which are worse positioned. And you know that, that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively that uh, we're going to transition. Uh, it, it likely to include consumers changing their preferences, whether that be electric vehicles, whether that be putting solar in their homes. We're going to see large-scale solar being, being built. Uh, and we've, and we're, you know, we would expect to see government policy change, and certainly the risk of government policy change, even the risk of a carbon price being um, put out there, means that companies that are highly exposed to fossil fuel production become a riskier investment as, as, as we go through time. Um, uh, and therefore, I would have thought it's more likely that they're going to underperform in that, in that type of environment. So you know, I think we need to, you know, the discussion needs to be around whether the environment for the next 20 years, you know, the investing environment, is going to look a bit different from that in the last 20. And Kerry, how many investments are in the portfolio? So just over 40 stocks in the portfolio. And that's a typical amount that you'd hold in the portfolio? And it is. So I think over the last, you know, one of the things I've been trying to, to demonstrate in the last three and a half years that we, we've been running the fund is that we could create a portfolio where we had this very strict definition that the core business must contribute positively to one of these challenges, one of the social or environmental challenges that we've, we've described. Um, but that the portfolio was still reasonably diversified by sector, by market capitalization, liquidity, uh, and that we could build a portfolio that had attractive investment characteristics and, and perform well. Uh, we're three and a half years into it, and, and so far I'm comfortable that we've achieved those objectives. And the fund size in, in dollars is, is how big? So we're still pretty small, so we're less than $10 million at the moment. Okay. And uh, the size of companies you can invest into can go right into micro cap, right up to the, the largest? Yeah, so I describe it as an all cap portfolio. Mm -hmm. We've only got three ASX 100 stocks in the portfolio. So the bias is absolutely towards mid small, and we can go into micro cap and do go into micro cap stocks. Uh, it's often easier with you know, small companies that the, you know, the purpose of their company is uh, easier to define and, and clearly beneficial for society. And the fund's long only, is it? It's not like you're out there shorting gaming or alcohol or something like that? No, so it's, it's long only. Um, we, we have hard exclusions, not that I think they'd ever make it into our definition of, a, of an impact company, but so zero tolerance for fossil fuel production, gambling, tobacco, etc. Um, but I'm... 
to your, to your point earlier, if, if I'm wrong about this mega trend and that's not the case, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, risking being on the, the other side of that sin trade um, by shorting companies. But I still think within our universe, we can find through stock selection, this is, you know, this is an active fundamental research, active stock picking um, approach to investing, that we can, we can still find companies that could generate good returns for our investors. So long only, uh, we can hold up to 20% cash at any point in time. So, so we're close to fully invested as well. Kerry, what would be an example of an investment opportunity where you come across and the fundamentals of the investment look very good, but then when you go through, well, does it fit the definition of doing good and the impact, when you dig into it, it becomes a debate amongst your investment team or your group, whether it be, for instance, a, a bank or something that finances a lot of good, but may also finance some fossil fuel or something like this. Are there any examples you can think of that our listeners would get an understanding of when you dig down into it, some of these can be a little tough? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, if you're at, at sort of the, if you're the pure sort of capitalist argument, you could argue that the companies are employing people and generating profits and, you know, and that you know, banks, for example, great, you know, um, help grow the economy and allow people to start businesses and, and, and buy their homes. Uh, so surely isn't, isn't that doing good? Well, where we, what, what, what we did by using the UN SDGs as a framework is say, well, let's, let's, look, let's go back to, are they specifically uh, achieving something which um, meets, contributes to those goals? And so for us, that excluded, you know, the banks, so we have no exposure to the banks, we have no exposure to materials or, or energy companies um, in our portfolio. But perhaps a good example, and this is more of an example of the, of the zero tolerance, is that we were invested in, in Infogen, which had, you know, it was, its assets were mainly, its, it was mainly wind power and, and some solar assets. And then they diversified into uh, gas assets. And so using it, applying our zero tolerance to fossil fuel production, we sold out of, of Infogen. Um, uh, and but we still felt the investment case was a you know we we bought it because we thought there was a sound investment case and um, you know, and eventually it, there's a takeover bid for the company. Um, but I come back to my point that we have you know, we've got over forty stocks in the portfolio. We've got sufficient opportunity whereby I'm comfortable our companies are contributing to the solution and that they are attractive investment propositions. And what are some of the examples in that 40 of your higher conviction ideas at the moment? Talk us through the investment thesis perhaps and also the, the doing good, the impact part of them as well. Yeah, sure. So maybe a couple of examples. Uh, they're both they're small to micro caps. Uh, on the re renewable energy side, we've been invested in GenX Power uh, since we started the fund. In fact, uh, we, had, we had a bit of luck, which was on the day we launched the fund and went to invest our money. Um, they decided to raise new capital, so we participated in their in their placement at sixteen cents. So Gen X Power, um, we invested in two thousand seventeen. Uh, that capital went in to help develop their first solar project, which became operational in late two thousand eighteen. So they built a fifty megawatt solar plant on a disused gold mine uh, in Queensland, which in itself is a great story. They they bought the gold mine for a dollar, 
and there was an existing transition transmission line um, from Townsville, which had been powering the gold mine. They simply built the solar plant, reversed the transmission line, and sent the electricity back to Townsville. So um, we invested in GenX, they built the 50 megawatt solar power plant. But the exciting part about the company now is that they are seeking financing for a 250 megawatt pumped hydro storage facility um, at, at, at in the same area using the um, the old gold mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're hopeful that they can reach financial close on that by the end of this year. Uh, and that'll be you know, it's an amazing, amazing project in terms of its positive impact on for the environment. So pumped hydro, this is the concept of using a hole in the ground for the mine full of water and then using uh, uh, solar to pump that up the top of the hill and then releasing that and hydropower releasing the power. Have yeah, I got that roughly right? Exactly, yeah. So okay. it effectively becomes a big battery. Yeah. Um, and can be used in, in and, peak And from times. an economic standpoint, that works? Yeah, absolutely. So you obviously what you're, you're, you're arbitraging the, the change in electricity price from between peak well, at peak mm-hmm. peak time, so you can they will the aim is to build a solar power plant that will pump the water up, mm-hmm. uh, and then when electricity demand is at its highest, is when you then generate um, from the pumped hydro and sell into the grid or sell directly um, at those higher electricity prices. Okay, and how's that company performed? What's, what's its sort of market capitalization been through the period you have been investing? Yeah, so um, it's now trading sort of in the mid-20s, so it's been a reasonable return for us. We really think if the pumped hydro project reaches financial close, that is a catalyst to unlock value. And also, as we've seen with Infogen and, and also happened recently with WindLab, um, there seems to be a lot of demand in the you know, unlisted sector for renewable energy assets. So you know, I, th- I think there's a fair chance that GenX could get taken over at some point in, in time as well. So you know, we've made about 50% of our money to date, and we still think there's decent upside on the stock from here. So it's good investment and making a great contribution to, to the re- renewable energy supply in Australia. Another example, perhaps, or a, an investment thesis outside of perhaps the renewable space that you're, you're keen on at the moment out of those 40 companies? Yeah, so our, and our newest portfolio investment uh, is, is a company called Proteomic. And this company has been around for, for nearly 20 years. And they, what they, they do is they develop um, tests for diseases where there's either not an existing test or not a, not a particularly effective or there's a very expensive uh, existing test. And they've got one, they've got a test which, they, which they've just launched um, for diabetic kidney disease. And what's special about this test is that it actually, when somebody gets diabetes, there's a high likelihood, one in three apparently, uh, diabetics go on to develop diabetic kidney disease. This test um, highlights the risk of developing it within four years and therefore through either lifestyle changes or now drugs that have been brought to the market recently, um, people can can uh, change their lifestyle, take the drugs, and then either delay the onset or even hopefully defer completely the onset of diabetic kidney disease. So it's it's quite a remarkable test. Uh, so this Aussie company has developed it. Uh, it's now they've launched into America, 
looking for distribution partners in America. So it's early, it's early days in the, in the commercialization of the test, but it's, it's now out there. The clinical trials obviously proved that it's effective. And given the size of the, of, of the problem, you know, the number of people with diabetes, there's 30 million people in America who have diabetes, you know, one in three goes on to develop diabetic kidney disease. This test could have a very significant positive impact on society. Um, and with a market capitalization of a bit over $40 million, it, it's, it looks to us to be extremely undervalued uh, as an investment proposition. So, you know, we really, you know, I get very excited when we can find companies where they're making a material difference to the quality of people's lives. It could, it could save substantial amounts of money for the healthcare system, which obviously could then be deployed elsewhere. Um, and you know, if it is successful in commercializing these tests, then, you know, then it's, a, it's a very exciting investment proposition. So um, that's our latest purchase for the portfolio. Kerry, thanks for that. What, what do you think are the major macro trends going on? Now, you've talked about renewables, you've talked about uh, health. What are the other major macro trends that you see going on that you're interested in tapping into as investment opportunities? So a large, you know, significant part of our uh, universe and, and portfolio is in the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. We actually break it down into, we, we call it well-being, uh, healthcare services, medical devices, and pharmaceuticals. And clearly, you know, I th I, you know what's, what's occurred this year with both at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, the bushfires and then the floods really brought home the climate crisis um, to us. And now with COVID, you know, the healthcare crisis. Uh, and so, you know, we, those are two areas, both um, the environmental sector investments and healthcare sector investments, which we're particularly keen on. You know, we think that, you know, the need, the urgent need uh, to drive more capital into those areas exists today. I think, you know, everyone would now recognize, most people would now recognize that. Um, and so those are, those are big trends for us. But other areas that we're invested in include, you know, as I mentioned earlier, education. Um, you know, Australia's developed some great software. You know, Mathletics mm -hmm. is, is um, you know, a product that's used all around the world. Australian listed company, 3P Learning, um, which and when we've been invested in that since the beginning of the fund. Uh, so education is another important sector for us. Um, uh, and then we have one, you know, we have a sector which we call healthy living, which is again about you know, activity, about food that we eat. Um, you know, I think th these are trends which are very well established now. Uh, and, and we can find companies listed on the ASX which are beneficiaries of those trends. And Kerry, are there any trends that you identify that you can see these are good trends, but they're just not investable? Well, the hardest one, uh, you know, the, to, to find in terms of the ASX. I mean, the environmental sector is the, is the hardest part mm -hmm. um, to, to find companies listed on the ASX to invest in. So GenX is, is a great example, but there aren't many uh, GenXs on the market. The, the, the area where um, well, I'd love to see more investments is, the, is, the, is energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. a, a big part of the solution is simply more efficient use of, of energy. Um, and we, you know, we we haven't yet we haven't got any stocks in our portfolio at the moment which play to that theme. 
So it is, you know, there are areas that we um, have identified as attractive for investment but can't find the opportunities today. What are your big learnings over the last three years of doing this and getting this off the ground? Um, what are the big takeout learnings for you? Or, or what things would have, if you had your time again, would you do differently? <clears throat> well, I think uh, I'm very comfortable with the fact that we have uh, a fund that, that provides, uh, you know, it's differentiated from, from other funds in the market. You know, as I said before, we are very clearly different from a do-no-harm portfolio. We're, we've set out to direct capital towards companies that provide the solutions. Uh, I'm comfortable that we have a diversified portfolio of stocks and I'm, and I'm obviously very pleased with the investment returns that we've generated um, over the last three and a half years. I think the job that we, that we have ahead of us, and coming onto your podcast is, is great for this, is explaining to people um, why an impact fund should be part of their overall portfolio. Um, what are the attributes that, that appeal to you know, both their sense of wanting to do good, to, to, to align their capital with their values, um, uh, and that it can still generate attractive investment returns. Uh, and so I think getting the message out about impact investing in general, um, why that's attractive for people, uh, and about our fund in particular, which provides people with exposure to ASX listed stocks and therefore enables us to give, you know, we have a daily unit price, daily liquidity, um, so we can give those great attributes of a listed equity fund, but still direct capital towards companies that are doing good. So I think the, the learning is we, we need to get out there and you know, tell people the, the So the, the fund is listed or unlisted? So the fund is unlisted, but only yes. invests in listed, listed companies. companies. And how has the performance of the fund been? So our gross returns have been around 12.5% per annum for the three and a half years that we've been running it. And the All Awards has generated a bit over 6% per annum in that period. So very pleased with the investment. From a outcome. financial standpoint, which of course leads to the other objective of this strategy is the, the impact. How do you measure that and how regularly do you measure that? Yeah, so exactly right. You know, we'd see... There are three aspects of impact investing uh, that, are, that are key to have. So the, our first pillar, which we've, we've talked about already, is the, the core business of the company being positive for society or the environment. Uh, the second pillar, it's often referred to as additionality in impact investing. Um, it is what extra do we bring as an impact investor that a normal investor wouldn't bring to the, to the table? And we're, we're trying to do two things there with our fund. One is around engagement. So engaging with the portfolio companies to help them scale the positive impact that they're doing and also to talk about any negatives that they may, may have in, the, in how they do business, which is, which is tending towards the, the ESG of, um, of engagement. So engagement's important and also participating in new capital raises. And you know, you know, the, the ambition is that when the fund is big enough, we could actually cornerstone placements or IPOs and, and help positive impact companies come to the stock market. But the third pillar, which is really important, I think, with impact measurement, uh, with impact investing, is measurement. And so we've committed to publish an annual impact measurement report 
And in that report, so we've, we've done three now, we're just over three years old, uh, in that report we focus solely on the impact aspects of the company's activities uh, with no reference to the financials or the investment outcome. So it's simply what does the company do, how is that positive for society and the environment, and, and what can we look to to, to measure that impact. I, I did a course at Oxford University back in 2018 on impact measurement, uh, and, and it's, it's a challenging area, it's a difficult area, but I think it's really important. You know, this idea that you can just invest in a portfolio of companies that generates, you know, let's say the stock market generates you 10% per annum, but, but it's, you know, it's, you're investing in companies which are negatively impacting on the environment, you know, destroying our world, uh, causing social problems. You know, it doesn't make sense to me that, that we just measure a single return and say, oh, it's, it's fine, you're generating a 10% return from doing that. Um, we need to look at what are the social impacts that these companies are having, what are the environmental impacts that these companies are having. You know, and it would make sense to me, I'd almost describe it as sort of an evolution of capitalism, if we could then start to price those things into companies' activities. So the company that was doing good would actually get a benefit from its business activities, and the company that was polluting the environment would have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. I think that's where we need to move the system towards if we're, if we're going to address the climate crisis and we're going to uh, avoid deep social problems and help to address the, the, the social problems. So measurement becomes really important. Now today, I, I, you know, I think it's, we're still very early in that process and when I look at my impact measurement reports I think they're a, they're a fraction of what they will hopefully be one day. Uh, so the, we, we end up doing a lot of work around what I describe as the outputs and the outcomes. We're not getting to the heart of the, of the impact measurement yet, but that's our intent. And so we've, we've, we've embarked on that and committed to that for our investors. And how have those impact results or outcomes compared to your expectation when you went into those investments, generally speaking? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we can do, we can do a lot more work around um, our expectations of, sort of, of benchmarking. Yeah, benchmarking. I, th I think that could become really important in, in the future. So I'd say, you know, we have, as with the investment outcomes, which I'm delighted with, I'm, I'm very pleased with the impact measurement reports that we've produced and that it does talk to the good these companies are doing. But it is really hard, uh, you know, to get data, um, metrics from companies that, that really goes to the heart of impact measurement today. And I think part of that may be that companies have that data in some cases and don't share it. Um, obviously we've seen a lot more put into sustainability reports in recent years but still that's really the large companies that are doing that so we've we engage with our smaller companies around what they are capable of doing uh, um, and on the social side you know it's 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 it becomes very difficult to determine what are the correct metrics to be targeting to understand whether you're having a positive impact or not but I think through engagement with the companies, I think through the growth of the impact investing sector, uh, you know, this, we can get better at measuring and perhaps eventually pricing 
the, the social and environmental good that, and bad uh, that companies do. Kerry, you mentioned before that communication and getting the message out was one of the biggest obstacles in this area. Have there been any other, over the last three years, noted recurring themes of pushback from potential investors as to why they wouldn't enter something like this? And I, I, think, I think you touched on both of them. I think one discussion I have with potential investors is that is the issue of, well, why, why don't I just maximise return over here and, and give some of my money away? It doesn't matter how I make the money or what the companies do, as long as I can make as much profit as possible and use that profit to do good, particularly in the areas that I believe in. And the second one is, you know, do I have to sacrifice return if you've got a smaller universe of companies to choose from? Surely somebody with a larger universe can, can generate better returns for me. So those, those and you have, we have touched on them, those are, I think, the two biggest pushbacks. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said before, I, I, I see it as complementary to, um, to philanthropy, not competitive, not saying one is right or one's wrong. Um, you can do both. I think, you know, if you're running a foundation, for example, that has at its core that it wants to do good, the idea of aligning the corpus or using the corpus to do good as well as the, the donations that you make each year would seem to make a lot of sense to me. Outside of philanthropic funds, how do you see individual investors or private families fitting an investment like this into their portfolio? Is it, is it simply taking out exposure to Australian equities and replacing that? Or are there any other ways that you see that seem to make sense or are recurring ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it can be thought of in, in one of two ways. Uh, you know, I, I hope that through time it is shown to be very competitive in terms of investment returns with other Australian equity funds. Uh, we may have a narrower universe, but that does give us the opportunity to go deeper into individual companies. We have very low portfolio turnover, so we're invested for many years, or we seek to invest in, in companies for many years. So I, I would hope that people could look at their current Australian equity portfolio or funds and say, you know, there's a fund that's not doing very well for me over here, or I don't, don't have confidence anymore, uh, and that we could, we could be a straight replacement for that. However, I do also think we, people could come to us with the impact investing lens uh, on and say, you know, I simply want to start having some of my portfolio or a larger part of my portfolio fully aligned with my values. Um, this fund, I don't have to worry about whether a do no harm stock is questionable. I, I know that the intent of the portfolio is for all of the companies to be positive contributors and therefore it fits into you know, this, this move, this trend that's clearly underway where people want to align their values, and so we fit that part of their, of their objectives. Terrific. Kerry, I think that's been a really good introduction and, and good summary of the fund and opportunity. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. That's great. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.